arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Name, Dr. Richard Kimball. The destination, Death Row State Prison. The irony, Richard Kimball is innocent. Proved guilty, what Richard Kimball could not prove was that moments before discovering his murdered wife's body, he saw a one-armed man running from the vicinity of his home. Richard Kimball ponders his fate as he looks at the world for the last time and sees only darkness. But in that darkness, fate moves its huge hand. A fugitive! A QM production. Starring David Jansen as The Fugitive. With special guest stars Vera Miles, Brian Keith, Harry Towns. Also starring Barry Morse as Lieutenant Gerard. Tonight's episode, Fear in a Desert City. When I was a teenager, the original Fugitive starring David Jansen was seen weekly. Richard Kimball... Hiding from Lieutenant Gerard and the Feds was always on the verge of getting caught. How could he live like that? I'm Robert P. Fitton, and how can he live like that is the operative question for three people caught up in the Green Haze project. For Sam and Nina, the situation gets worse. Grafton is immersed with the various power interests from other countries as well as companies. At the same time, Garrison is about to unlock, with the help of contacts, the true nature of Green Haze. He later travels to his contact, Keaton, and via the internet, he uncovers incredible information. Let us begin episode four of Green Haze by Robert P. Fitton. Green Haze, chapter 20. Sam looked up at the ceiling. The sun had risen long ago, and the brilliant mid-morning light stung his eyes. He had slept deeply. Nina's eyes popped open and she smiled. He kissed her hair and forehead. Why is it I think we're going to get out of this? Maybe we will. He turned and pulled his watch from the nightstand. Ten past ten. He fell back against the fluffy pillow and looked up at the ceiling. Mail comes in fifty minutes. At least we can see those pictures. What do you think about storing them on Griff's website? I still want the prints, Nina. His stomach was pumped with adrenaline now. So many things could go wrong. Just because no one had confronted them since Florida didn't mean their pursuers were not lurking. He took Griff's card from the stand. Sam set the card next to the watch. At least Griff understands all this. He's a good guy. After all these years, just to drop what he's doing and help us. I think he kind of likes the excitement. Well, we could do with a little less excitement and a lot more Iowa. I feel bad for everybody back home, not knowing whether we're dead or alive. My father is a strong guy, but my parents must be talking to Reverend Stevens. I know they are. My mother must be freaking. Poor Jason. Oh, my God. I want my baby back. They lay in bed for another few minutes. Sam rose. He went over directly to the phone and dialed Griff's house. It was early for his friend to return, but it was worth taking the chance. Waiting for those pictures was now unbearable. He tried a second time, and when the line kept ringing, he returned to the bedroom to tell Nina he was taking a shower. You want to use it first? 
No, go ahead. Griff will be by in about a half an hour. Sam usually took a long shower, but this morning he rushed, and so did Nina. As 11 o'clock approached, they were watching TV. He had begun the habit of pulling back the shades to check for Griff's truck. For the next 15 minutes, he looked out the window between scenes of Gilligan's Island and calling Griff's house. He went back to the phone at 20 past the hour and tried to call Griff's real estate office. Three office people bounced in between the phones, but he soon found that Griff had left the office at 10.30 and told them that he was going back to his house. Damn! He dropped the phone back in place and checked the gun in his pocket. Something is wrong. Griff is supposed to be home. Let's get out of here. He grabbed Nina by the forearm and headed for the door, but she stopped him. Suppose there is something wrong. Do we really want to be walking right into it? We need those pictures. He pulled back the chain and unlocked the door. They bounded down the stairs. When he saw the outside light through the storm door, he took out the gun and panned the yard. From the shrubs to the side street, he saw no movement, nothing unusual. Nina leaned forward. If somebody got him, it's not going to make any difference. If everything is all right, we can reach him by phone later. Talking about my buddy out there, he could be bleeding to death in his truck. Sam pushed the aluminum latch and the door creaked open. The fresh air filled his nostrils and they moved onto the cement walk. Again, he checked the area. His heart thumped against his ribs as he moved deliberately through the shrub opening and onto the sidewalk. Somebody could easily target them right now. Every second was filled with the constant threat of being followed, and he wasn't going to take any chances. He steered Nina through a series of backyards before emerging on an adjacent street. Even then, he looked for any cars waiting or people that might be out there, but everything was quiescent in the suburban neighborhood. They linked arms down the cracked sidewalk along a chain-link fence and ranch houses. The dim sunlight was giving way to a brighter sun higher up in the blue sky, casting shadows over the burgeoning tree buds. The pictures, obtained after hours of thought and weighing the photographic information carefully, were his best guess. He had also been through the entire trip in his mind, wondering if they had seen anything out of the ordinary. Everything happened quickly after those pictures were shot. They would have confiscated the film in the car if Sam hadn't sent out the mailers. Those machine gun guys swept through everything. Nothing he or Nina bought was of any value or of a dubious nature. Only the film was a liability. He prayed they had not figured out where they had mailed the film. They reached the corner and he peered around a huge oak. A single compact car with an elderly woman leaning forward toward the windshield chugged toward him. Still, he stepped back. Can't believe this is happening, Sam. Nina watched the car stop at the corner, and then they continued. Sam was still alert when they crossed the road. I hope he's all right. Sam approached Griff's contempt cautiously from behind and scaled a small chain-link fence abutting a row of taller green shrubs. The swimming pool covered with blue plastic was just ahead. He studied everything across the yard and along the vertical gray wood boards. The windows were dark. Let's get to the mailbox. They raced along the side lawn, darting in and out of rows of trees toward a huge bush beginning to flower near the house. Griff's truck was parked behind the fence. Maybe he had just arrived, but Sam's eyes fixated on the mailbox. I'm going to check that box first. Sam, I don't like this. He tightened his face and scurried along the fence. Like a vaulting runner, he scaled the fence just before the truck. He rushed up to the mailbox, but the metal container was empty, and he retreated quickly. Nothing! I don't dare go in from the front. Well, let's call it. We need those pictures, Nina. 
Sam kicked the cellar window and then unlatched it. He swept the glass away with his shirt sleeve and helped Nina inside. Then he lowered himself into the dank, half-lit basement. He gently rubbed his finger along the gun trigger. With his other hand behind Nina's back, he headed for the stairs. She started to say something, but he shook his head. The dim light gave way to darkness, and he had to feel his way up the banister as she held his shirt. When he thought he had reached the top, he reached for the doorknob, slowly turned it, and light hit his eyes. He brought Nina into Griff's front foyer. Place was too quiet as they moved over the gray tiles. He peered around the empty living room toward the front door's yellow side lights glowing in the morning sun. They both turned and climbed the white-carpeted stairs to the upper-level kitchen. He dared not say anything as the gun shook in his hand. Why was the truck out there with no one in the house? Once at the top, they slid precariously toward Griff's rear office. At the corner, a man in a gray sweatshirt burst into the hall with his weapon drawn. Sam fired once. The man collapsed onto the blood-splattered white rug. Nina grabbed Sam. My God! My God! Sam pulled her behind the wall, but no one else came out. Where was Griff? He scooped the larger gun and gave Griff's handgun to Nina. Slowly he went forward, turning into the office. His friend was in a dark business suit, and a bullet had pierced his smooth skin above his Adam's apple. The computer and monitor were smashed, and an empty yellow and red photo mailer lay on the floor. Jesus, Griff! He wept openly, backing a hysterical Nina into the hall. The dead man on the floor had a coiled earphone cord spiraling down his sweatshirt. This man is some kind of government agent. Sam! Sam stood and retreated to Griff's office. Except for the blood all over his suit and rug, Griff looked as if he were asleep. Sam cried again, his hands shaking as he reached into Griff's pocket and dug out the truck keys. He gazed over his old friend one final time. The front door slammed against the wall as he stood. He thrust out the larger gun. For a moment he hesitated, but then jumped onto the hall and fired. Three guys in suits dove to the floor. He pulled Nina toward the rear sliders and heard someone yell as he slid the doors across the track. We can deal, Peters. We have the pictures. Sam knew better than to believe them. He and Nina raced across the deck, leaped over the railing, and sailed onto the grass. His mind buzzed with options as his friend's dead body flashed into his thoughts. He ran with Nina across the yard and turned near the lilac bushes. Someone was running around the house. He gripped her hand and headed for the next street. We're going back. Use your head, Sam. We can't fight them. The truck. Shortwave radios blasted around the house. He paralleled three men crossing the backyard and then ducked behind an evergreen hedge along the adjacent yard. They sprinted to the truck. She slid across the front seat as he started the engine, shifted quickly and skidded down the street. The side windows exploded and bullets punctured the truck's metal exterior. He pushed Nina's face down on the floor. In the mirror, the men with the suits were lined across the road and firing as if they were at a midway shooting gallery. Sam spun the trucker around the corner. Two black and white police cruisers blocked the road. Why were the cops involved in this? He whipped the truck around 180 degrees, jammed on the brakes near the sidewalk, and shifted again. The cops moved out. He pushed the pedal down, almost swiping an oncoming car as he tried to outrun them. Nina, they've tipped off the cops. They have the pictures. 
Sam wove through traffic, forcing cars off the boulevard. He turned onto a golf course access road and crossed onto the green itself. Nina screamed as they raced down the fairway. They want us dead, Sam! We have too much on them! He felt guilty for having gotten Griff involved as he drove toward the clubhouse and looped behind the dumpster. A bottled water truck was back to the clubhouse's rear door. Out! Out of the truck, Nina! Truck doors flew open and they ran around the dumpster. A kid in a sweatshirt lugged two large plastic jugs into the clubhouse. They rushed up the truck ramp and squeezed behind their water jugs. He positioned himself next to Nina near the front wall. At least 50 jugs separated them from the rear doors. Short time later, the kid returned and hurled three empty containers into the truck. The door rumbled downwards, shutting out the light. They rushed up the truck ramp and squeezed behind the water jugs inside the truck. He positioned himself next to Nina, near the front wall. At least 50 jugs separated them from the rear doors. A short time later, the kid returned and hurled three empty containers into the truck. The door rumbled downward, shutting out the light. Sam held Nina against his sweaty body as the truck, resonating with loud brass music, backed up. Hidden in the darkness, they had bought a few precious minutes of time. After the driver removed more water jugs at the next stop, Sam helped Nina through the stacks. They stepped onto a busy city sidewalk. His thoughts were muddled with Griff dead and the police now involved. They scooted off the main street, and he faced Nina in a side alley lined with small boutiques. Nina, she clung on to him. So sorry, Sam. So sorry this whole thing happened. I don't know what to do. Those pictures were our last hope. He pretended to walk along with her as other people approached. I killed one of their people. That's the pretext that they're going to use. We're screwed. No, I can't think like that. You've done nothing wrong. We've done nothing wrong. You snapped the pictures. We know that's what they wanted. Maybe they'll back off. Yeah, if I hadn't shot that guy, he would have killed us. You had to kill him. They walked along the boutiques. Then we get out. We just keep going, Nina. We just keep going. We don't stop. Jason won't have any parents. She cried against his chest. Before, he had the promise of finding out the identities of the men on the bridge. Now they could keep running, but it was just a matter of time before they were caught, and it all ended. Green Haze, Chapter 21 Grafton would rely on rebel timing. His jet climbed higher into the sky over Argos, sweeping in a huge arc over the Azure Ocean to start his flight inland. His mission was as clear as the orange digits counting out the elapsed minutes on the panels before him. Through the glass bubble, the land horizon tilted into view again, and he slowly began his acceleration east. His course was exact, the topography etched in his mind months ago. Outrage against Mbutu would be heard around the world when this jet was downed. It would bring official U.S. money to the rebel cause. Manville, with Grafton's guidance, would begin a final push toward Agos. All his well-orchestrated planning now seemed inconsequential. He wanted to perform his mission and get on with the Chinese proposal. Nothing had come out of the meetings with Seville and Mrs. Collins. She could smell the money in the air. Some old friend, perhaps Seville himself, must have alerted her to the deal, but she said nothing about it all evening. Only later did she mention working with him. 
which is interesting since the Chinese had not directly approached him to consummate the deal. The longer they waited, the more people would know about it. Maybe Collins was waiting for somebody else. He was far enough inland now to see the Mount Ramon bulge over the cocky landscape. Lake Shah, bright and blue, would soon be nestled between the mountains and the desert to the north. In 22 minutes, he would be ejected skyward and allow the rebels to destroy the F-16 before beginning an international incident. Anxiety continued to plague him as he studied the tapering hills along Ramon's western escarpments. His career blurred like the green fields now moving below the jet. He had graduated from Ohio University and went to Vietnam as a first lieutenant. They thrust him into intelligence and he went along as a lark. But he found he was a proficient executioner of covert instructions, thriving on danger. Being on the edge led him to the Chinese thing. Part of it was money, and part of it was being burned out. But even more tantalizing was the challenge of evading those brilliant career strategists like Edgar Mitchell, who were already circumventing the administration. Grafton's disappearing with millions would be the ultimate coup. He could not return to Washington once he successfully engineered Seville into power. But he was certain that the powerful Mbutu had no idea his chief general was plotting against him. Both Washington and the oil people would have presidential preferences as long as the oil and profits were flowing. It was a well-thought-out staged performance once the rebels threatened the wells and actually took control of Agos. The oil interests would be finessed, and a fine pressure applied once Mitchell's man, Colonel Manville, was dead. Grafton would then convince Mitchell and the others that Seville was the only choice to keep the oil flowing. The observation radar atop Mount Ramon was a useless piece of equipment since the threat to Panjian security came not from the skies, but from the ground. Specific landmarks along the lake were clearer now, a tiny fishing village with wood wharfs extending from the sandy shore. The village itself was obscured by denser foliage near the water. You could see the red soil lake roads and the main road cut to the mountain settlements. The rebel escarpment was reached by winding pathways through the dense jungle growth and up the hills. The jet shadow crossed a long beach spit. Fishing boats skirted the shore. The lush shoreline was once a haven for tourists staying at the retreat, an exclusive club for the elite. Its abandoned lakeside bars and algae-laden pools were left to destruction by local boys, supposedly fishing the lake. The jet was due within two minutes to veer east, over the mountains, and above the savannah. The plan called for an elongated loop, bringing him back as the perfect target over the lake at reduced speed. The steep mountain ridges were like pointed rock swords below. He checked the clock and brought the craft eastward. Soldiers were in place with weapons procured by his own agency, manufactured in the Far East and funded illicitly. The jet started to swing over the savannah. In ten minutes, he would be on the ground, but without theatrics. A group of hand-picked soldiers would quickly whisk him to Colonel Manville's mountain headquarters. Apprehension seeped into his thoughts. When he returned, he would seek out the Chinese and define exactly what they wanted. As the jet reached its apogee, he pondered all the domestic aspects of Green Haze and how Sam and Nina Peters and Garrison were still at large, threatening everything. Those guys in St. Augustine should have gone after the film and not the Peters, and his people should have killed Garrison back at the Campbell's house. He closed his eyes and prepared to eject. 
He was breathing erratically like some incompetent novice. The lake was in full view, a spreading blue expanse under puffy clouds. Maybe it was guilt, or maybe it was the weakness of being sucked into the Chinese thing. Now they would target the jet from the ground. He checked the outside window. The landmarks were lining up almost perfectly to the computer projection and satellite photos he had memorized back in the office, and the mountains bordered the foothills down to the lake and jungle. He squelched all radio frequencies and counted down the seconds out loud as he activated the ejection mode. The bubble enclosure blew off, and he was thrust into the sky. The shock was greater than he had envisioned as the jet's mighty engines thrust forward. He floated and soon sensed a tug as the orange nylon fabric ruffled above him against the blue sky. The jet moved slowly westward like a riderless horse through the sky. As he held the chute straps, ground flashes preceded smoky trails shooting upward. The sleek silver jet was hit below the fuselage, splintering into a fiery mass spreading outward across the sky. Larger chunks with the expanding black smoke careened toward the ground. He gripped the straps and his legs swayed as he scanned the ground now, but he was farther west than he had anticipated. Mandel's people would visually track the chute, and a low wattage beacon would give them his exact location. He had jumped into situations like this so many times. The important thing was staying clear of the trees, and he steered the straps, bringing his body on a direct course between the bushy clusters. He sauntered across the air currents toward the treetops, brushing the wispy branches as the sunlight faded and he sank into the jungle morass. The undergrowth rose upward and he tensed his bent legs. He hit the dense bushes hard, snapping a few branches with his boots as he thumped against the forest floor. The chute was an orange tangled mass and the rope lines were twisted in the branches. He snapped loose, scrambled to his feet, and quickly wiped his scraped cheek on the fabric. Removing his gun, he retreated to a tree clump on the hill. The radio beacon was activated. It was now a matter of waiting. One hour and fifteen minutes had passed, and confusion would abound in Agos and possibly in official Washington. Enough witnesses would confirm the explosion, and coupled with Mitchell's disinformation, Mbutu would be accused of shooting down the United States diplomat. He smiled for a moment as he looked up the hill. This incident, its true nature only known by a select few, would reverberate around the world. The jungle's silence was broken by noises beyond the orange chute. He fanned the gun as he turned. A small patrol circled out of the foliage and weapons were pointed at him. He counted nine unfamiliar men, some of them Asian clad in the camouflage rebel uniforms, following Roland James toward the tree clump. James wore a camouflage cowboy hat, held in place by a tightened brown cord under his chin. Hey, you're a little off course, are you? You. James smiled, revealing his chipped yellow tooth and bright red gums. Are you ready for retirement, Craig? Grafton was in no mood for small talk. I'll give you less than a half an hour before Manville's people arrive here. Understood. Does the name Chun Sun Wan mean anything to you? Chun was a high-level Chinese operative in the African theater. His nefarious background extended back decades all over the globe. I know who he is. What's the deal? Grafton looked at the distracted Asians, their guns still trained on his head, and tell your hired warriors to lower their weapons. James yelled out something in Chinese. I guess what? 
He casually lit a cigarette and put his foot up on the tree trunk as he grinned at Grafton. Nervous, Craig? Grafton thrust his leg into the air, cracking James's shoulder, and the gun went flying. He hooked his forearm around James's neck and tightened the hat cord. James's men lifted their weapons as Grafton pointed his own gun at James's temple. You don't taunt me. You understand that, you little bloodsucker? James's red face reflected abject fear as he nodded and produced a choking garble. I understand. Grafton took his gun and released the cord. Then you tell me the deal, or I kill you right now. Five million American dollars in a Swiss account. Grafton kept the gun at his head. One of James's men moved with his rifle. Grafton fired, knocking the guy to the jungle floor. Then he swung the gun back into James's skull. You call your bastards off. He yelled in Chinese and they dropped the rifles. Do they want me to bring Seville to power? James hesitated and Grafton pulled the hat cord again, but not as tightly. They do want Seville in. They do want Seville in. You can convince the U.S. of that, but you have to get rid of Manville. Interesting. That would be a nifty trick. Killing Manville was an easy act, but selling Seville to Mitchell would be harder. Grafton pictured Seville escorting him around the mansion last night. The most difficult problem would be convincing the rebels and Butu's general was now their leader. Only Grafton was in the unique position to accomplish that end. I want two million up front in Agos before I do anything, and I want Swiss account numbers, which I will verify. If any of those conditions are not met, the deal is off. You got that? Yep, but how do I find you? found me out here. He then grit his teeth. One more thing. Who is Mrs. Collins and who is she working for? I don't know Mrs. Collins. He ground the gun into James's temple. Wrong answer. Okay, she's working for herself. What does she know? That I don't know. Grafton let that answer simmer. Then he dragged the gun back and tucked it inside the leather strap. James moved his head around and rubbed his chafed skin. He said nothing more to Grafton and headed toward his men. The patrol picked up their weapons and filtered back into the jungle. A new life had opened up before him. In the Pangean wilderness, he had proposed a deal allowing him to disappear forever. His career meant nothing now. It would be an arduous task to get Manville in power and then kill him. He would need to sell Seville both to Washington and the rebels. Grafton leaned against the trees. This was no setup. The five million had only been the first offer, and he was convinced, given the profits to be reaped, his proposal was just a routine money transfer from Chung. He began to dream of places around the world. He would plan his disappearance perfectly, establishing a new identity, and live a life without the constant pressures of life and death. Green Haze, Chapter 22 The chirping birds hidden in the bushes beckoned Garrison back in time as morning broke. Combined with the smog layer east of the city, the San Pedro air produced a brilliant crimson display across the morning skies. Loretta listened so patiently last night when he told his story. Felt like the old days. He watched her earlier as she poured the almond blend into the coffee filter. But the old days were gone. 
He was running for his life now, and ever-persistent feelings of sudden death preoccupied his thoughts more than the loss of her relationship. When they were together, he had wanted to come and go when he pleased and expected her to fall in line. It was only now, with forces poised to kill him, did he realize he wasn't fair to Loretta. As she finished brewing the coffee, he stared at the clear CD case, the obscure chemical formulas invisibly stored in bits and bites. Examining the contents and reviewing it with somebody competent in chemistry was not just an intriguing part of this investigative story. Garrison was in a battle for life, knowing he had to find the source of these compounds and link them to that van in the desert. He was in impossible positions before and had leveraged people, commonly called blackmail, into seeing things his way. She looks good. She never complained and you threw it all away, you monkey. But she shifted gears. No way she'd give you a second chance, Roy. She gave you a hundred second chances. You're right in the thick of more problems, just like before. She still loves you, Roy, but there ain't no way she'll take you back. It's too late, and you probably won't survive anyway. How was the couch, Roy? Garrison turned. She had that same misty morning look he had taken for granted all those years they were together. I was so tired I could have slept on cement. She handed him the coffee mug. I did some thinking last night. Wait, I'm sorry. Look, I burst in here. It wasn't like I came back to see how you were doing. I came back because I wanted something. I'm sorry. He shrugged his shoulders and then sipped the hot coffee. She always kept it hot. I'm sorry about Richard. He nodded and felt the anger surge. Stopping whoever was waging this campaign against him was essential, and he had to decipher that CD. He turned toward the window and longed for her touch, but as he looked at her across the table, he was again aware it was not going to happen. After breakfast, on her way to work, Loretta drove him to an isolated bus terminal off the freeway. They engaged in small talk. He hinted at returning, yet she never offered. She talked to Sarah Humphreys at the Institute. Sarah had located someone at the Institute with a chemical background, but Garrison was increasingly cynical about his ability to utilize the CD information. He kissed Loretta's forehead and squeezed her hands. Tears rolled down her face as he released his grip, turned, and climbed the bus steps. As he moved down the aisle, he saw her through tinted windows, gazing upward from the terminal platform. Like him, she was probably wondering how things had gotten so messed up. He sunk into a soft, high back seat and expected to see her gone when he looked back toward the platform. But her eyes caught his and he slowly raised his hand. She waved back and then crossed her arms over her red dress. Loretta entered the terminal and peered from behind the glass. The bus engine started and Garrison leaned against the headrest, afraid to keep looking but he was drawn to her as the bus backed away from the concrete platform. Her image swung just as the bus looped around the lot. Then he pushed his head into the seat, locked his arms over his chest, blew it, Roy. Somehow you gotta find her again. You have to come back. What had ever been more important than Loretta? All those late night stories? Loyalty to the paper? Finding the truth? And now you're left with nothing, Roy, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Sarah Humphreys moved her petite figure around her office desk. Her short gray hair, precisely cut, matched the color of her dress, 
and her round silver-rimmed glasses, beveled for reading, gave her the perfect academic appearance. She was a proper lady and in charge of several departments at the Marine Institute. Sarah walked him out of the office and up the stairs to the fourth floor. And how is my Loretta? Loretta looks well. She turned from above. Are you two, uh... No, no, no. Loretta and I, we... Well, we went our own ways. I see. Sarah seemed to view the relationship like an old building or city fixture being torn down. Perhaps you two will get back together. Perhaps the Titanic will float to the surface on its own accord. She was unmoved at the attempt of oceanographic humor and walked him to an office at the end of the corridor. She glanced and smiled as she prepared to unlock the office door. Maybe it will, Roy. Maybe it will. She slowly opened the door and popped on several of the overhead fluorescent lights. When he caught sight of the computer, he thought of his dead brother and the Campbells. Sarah pranced across the office like a show horse, turning on the computer as she sat down. You may use this office as long as you want. Professor Morton is scheduled to meet you here at 3 p.m. He can help you with your CD. Thank you. This is very nice of you, Sarah. She smiled as the screen ignited with color, and she motioned him to sit at the console. It's all yours. I appreciate this. Appreciate? The stupid thing could be of national importance. Not at all. You tell Loretta. I'll have to look her up whenever I get back in the area. If you have any questions, please call me. I'm at 3026. Okay. He shook her bony hand. She smiled and hesitated. Roy, she's really a nice girl. Garrison nodded. I know that, Sarah. Good luck. He listened as her heels clicked over the vinyl corridor tiles. Once the hall was silent, Garrison closed the door, locked it, and rushed to the window. He peered through the old-fashioned, dusty, wide blinds. Thick green vines and bright flowers lined the boulevard. A few cars were at the parking meters, and professional types walked the sidewalks between classes. He feared being followed and didn't want to spend too much time in one place. Staying on the run would keep him alive. He would talk to Morton and then leave. He shut off all the overhead fluorescence and positioned himself in front of the screen. After a long breath, he removed Lynette Campbell's CD from the case. He pushed it in the drive and again was confused by the same complex array of chemical formulas popping on the screen. He looked at the clock. Another half hour and Morton would be able to make sense of this. Precisely at three, someone knocked at the office door. Garrison stood blurry-eyed and walked to the door. Yes? Through the wood door, he heard a clear voice. Mr. Garrison, I'm Professor Morton. Garrison nodded as relief swept over him. It was as if Morton was about to steal him all the answers on a difficult test. He unlocked the door. Morton, a tall gray-haired man in a crisp beige suit, walked upright into the office. Garrison thought him snooty but well-mannered. Mr. Garrison, I understand you need some help. Garrison nodded. Help. I need to increase my brain cells is what I need. He shut the door and locked it as Morton caught sight of the screen. Sarah talked about a chemical formula. I have a biochemistry background, but I must say I'm quite deficient when it comes to pharmaceuticals. He walked up to the screen and set down his briefcase. Interesting. Morton seemed intrigued by what he saw, and then he smiled. Why, this is viral endoplasmic disease. Ah. Deadly, if not treated quickly. 
He sat down and clicked the mouse as if he were on hyperdrive and looked as if he understood what he was viewing. Pizac compound, the antidote. Professor, um, who makes this stuff? I can't say I know that, but it's easily found in any pharmaceutical book, or if you're on the computer here, on the internet. Is that everything that's on this CD? Yes, yes, it's just a breakdown of chemicals. Having the antidote is a very lucrative proposition. Morton looked up with a sly grin. Garrison stroked his chin. He had thought of that possibility. I would venture to think that thousands could be made treating VED with Pizac compound. Morton looked up with a grin. Thousands? Pizac compound is a very expensive treatment, Mr. Garrison. Is VED a common disease? Sporadic outbreaks, you might find that on the internet, too. Let me ask you this, and it may sound stupid. No, no, no. Like I tell my students, no question is stupid. Garrison leaned forward and stared at the tiny viral strains winding across the screen. Okay, can you breed this stuff? I mean, grow it in the lab? Well, why would you want to? That is a good question, Professor. Well, yes, like any type of bacteria or virus, it could be grown for vaccines or experimental purposes. Or deliberately spreading the stuff and bringing up their own antidote. That was it. That was it. That's why the van was heading north. Fly the stuff out somewhere and infect people. But why? Other than the obvious money angle. And this thing can be deadly? Well, from what I've read, flu-like symptoms, loss of fluids and consciousness within 48 hours, and then death? Grover Moses. After a short silence, Morton looked up. I'll be in my office for another few hours if you have any further questions. Garrison nodded. Thank you, Professor, really. What's going on here, Mr. Garrison? Morton stood, squinting at the screen. Would seem to be nefarious. It is... Garrison walked Morton across the office and opened the corridor door. He shook the professor's hand. If I were you, professor, I would just look at this as a consult. And forget the speculation. Yes. Morton pursed his lips and cautiously nodded his head once. Then he walked down the hall. When he entered the stairwell, Garrison quickly shut the door. The internet was the answer. Those chemicals were manufactured by somebody... He sat down at the desk and pulled the CD out and clicked on a browser. Again, he walked to the window and checked the lush foliage along the street. Then he quickly returned to his seat. The first thing he did was to search worldwide epidemics over the last 18 months. He leaned back in the chair as the search engine page downloaded. Okay, Roy, you find the company and you prove they or someone is providing that compound to outbreaks. So what? They've already gotten to Hobson. Anyone else will eventually get word back to Richard's killers. He opened his eyes and the screen was filled with options. His first action was access to the outbreaks of VED on a Canadian medical website. What he found during the next few minutes was astonishing. In 17 places, he found sporadic outbreaks of VED in all minor cities, mostly in third world countries. Each of the outbreaks had an accompanying story describing dozens dead, including men, women, and children. Twenty-four people had died in Jabalpur in India. It was odd that nothing seemed related. He clicked the mouse. The dozens now were soon adding up to hundreds. The bastards. Was somebody deliberately infecting people? No concern for life. He pulled a disc out of the plastic wrap in the top drawer. It was time to download all this stuff. 
After inserting the disc, he clicked again. More cities popped up with the same story. Paraju, Brazil, Nijobi, Tanzania, Lahore, Pakistan. It was important to plot the outbreaks on a world map. He was about to return to begin the downloading when one of the stories stunned him. Pizak compound, manufactured by Prescott Pharmaceuticals, was being shipped to Nong Kai, Thailand last January. Prescott was lauded for discounting the compound to local authorities. They could afford to discount it if they were selling the stuff at each outbreak site. In Marrake, New Guinea, 23 children were killed and a total of 37 in San Julian, Argentina. This is incredible, Roy, but where's the proof? No big number of deaths, just enough to get the drug in there. Prescott could just be an innocent bystander to the actions of the military. Even the premise of the military manufacturing this is shaky. But why were they transporting it at all? And all the outbreak sites are scattered, not connected by anything except randomness. And that might be significant. You're upset about Richard Roy. You're looking for answers. He figured he had enough once he had filled up the disc. This conspiracy would have worked nicely had the van not flipped over and popped open the VED vials. He tried to see Prescott's perspective, but the van was carrying vials of VED and the military emerged out of nowhere to clean it up. They tried to kill you in the Campbell's house, Roy, then they killed your brother. If it wasn't the military, then who the hell was it? He searched for Prescott Pharmaceuticals. Going to the press would get him killed. He pushed the wood chair back over the tiles and paced the room. Get it together. You go down and the story goes down. You need proof this disease was planted. How would they do it? According to readouts, it might be as simple as dumping it in the water supply. Something is very wrong here, Roy. He leaned against the window and pulled up the blinds. They killed Richard, they killed the Campbells. They have to be doing something with this disease. Then he hit the window casing. Son of a... Green Haze, Chapter 23. The Prescott Pharmaceutical site was loaded with product specifications and marketing literature. Forty-five minutes passed until Garrison found his first relevant piece of information. Prescott had plants and warehouses around the country, but the Bakersfield plant concerned him. A van leaving Bakersfield, heading for the military reservation, would not pass near Merced on the interstate. And Merced was between the plant and the military reservation. That information nudged him closer to the elusive proof he needed. But these were only spots on the map. And linking them to Prescott, all the military was tenuous. He continued reading the marketing and product information. Pizak compound was explained in both layman's terms as well as the same type of complex chemical readout Lynette Campbell had given him. Just how much additional information she had accumulated after she mailed the CD to Richard's house was uncertain. Garrison leaned forward in the chair, running his thumbnail along his teeth, and clicked through the hundreds of pages of detailed information. Fatigue and stinging eyes caused him to miss paragraphs and possibly relevant information. The hunger pains in his gut told him he needed a break. It was after six o'clock when he turned to the phone book's yellow pages. Although he believed he had surreptitiously traveled to La Jolla, he was afraid to leave the office. He ordered a large meatball sub with provolone, 
some french fries and two ice cream sandwiches as well as a large coffee, light and two sugars. Then he sprawled on the couch, folded his hands on his chest as he waited for the delivery. What was the connection? Pure profit was a good motive for Prescott, but what bothered him was how quickly the military truck arrived on the scene with the morotoxin. Why not just call Prescott if you're driving a Prescott van? That was the link, unproven, but good enough for some fancy speculation. Where was the money from the Pizak compound going? And who had called the military? And did the military have some financial stake or a connection in Prescott? That wouldn't be on the damn website. With the rap on the door, Garrison stood and checked the outside window. In the twilight, a small red delivery flag jutted up from the blue Hyundai, still idling outside the building. He flipped off the monitor and unlocked the corridor door. An auburn-haired girl in a blue uniform held white food bags in her hand. A sub, fries, ice cream sandwiches, and coffee. Thanks. Garrison swiped the receipt, ripping the cellophane tape off the bag. He took out his wallet and pulled out a crumpled $10 bill and told her to keep the change. For a second, she glanced at the blank computer screen and then at him. She half smiled and headed out. He longed to be that age again and removed from the pressures of life. Garrison locked the door. Then he spread out the french fries and turned on the screen again. He mushed the meatball and tomato sauce in his mouth as he began reading the site. Prescott was broken down into dozens of drug-related subsidies. He mixed the coffee and lifted the cup to his lips. This was going to take some time. Through the long night, Garrison wandered between the couch and the computer screen. He sifted through voluminous but irrelevant information. It was 3.35 a.m. when he checked his luminous blue watch dial and rolled off the couch again. The office was dimly lit by the screen's yellow and red graphics as he staggered back to the chair and yawned. He stared at the marketing program for some decongestant drug called Corplex. Steadying himself in front of the keyboard, he tried a new approach and moved out of the consumer product section. Prescott was a public company with stockholders and records. Perhaps a close look at company reports might yield something. Each of the plants around the country had separate accounting systems and income allocation. He gravitated to the Bakersfield summary because of its proximity to Merced and the VED spillage. For 45 minutes, he went line by line, but found nothing and fell asleep at the keyboard. The early morning sun rays scattered under the office door when he awoke. He stood, his stomach growling, and walked to the door. The sun burst into his eyes through the corridor window span. Squinting, he leaned against the glass and stared into the courtyard. The hummingbirds hovered, wings imperceptible in the air, next to the garden feeders. You know Prescott manufactured the antidote, Roy. But that's the only hard evidence you have. The military thing with the van is second-hand information. Probably true, but second-hand. Linking both of them to outbreaks is speculation. If you were reporting, you'd know it was speculation. You wouldn't print it. Yet, you believe it. You believe Prescott or the military spread that disease and then cleaned up the profits. Nobody was dead and they weren't trying to kill you, Roy. You might say it was all innocent. Damn. He spun around and marched back into the office. No one in their right mind would set up all that on public records. Or would they? He shook his head as he looked out the window and knew he would have to solve something with the information he had on Lynette's CD and the new downloaded CD. Having breakfast would be the smart thing to do. 
He returned to the desk, popped the downloaded disc, and placed it in his pocket. Figuring this thing out was not impossible. But as he knew years ago as a street reporter, without the facts, he had no story. He shut down the computer and the monitor before he left the office. The sunlight along the corridor window stung his eyes as he moved to the outside stairwell. This is simple, Roy. Find out who runs Prescott. That's question number one. Find out if they could manufacture that virus and then prove the outbreaks were deliberate. But where do the profits go? Who benefits? Prescott? The only other possibility is Prescott is innocent and the military infected all those areas. But that isn't rational. You don't gain a military advantage by infecting the populace of places nobody ever heard of. Then again, but you do make money. Damn, Prescott must have done it. They must have made the virus, too. That's all hidden. As he waited in line near a McDonald's register, three late model sedans turned into the parking lot as if they were surrounding the place. Who could have followed him here? He stepped out of line, dodged several patrons, and pushed the front glass doors. Once outside, he leaped past the cars in the drive-up window and then sprinted toward a perimeter-link fence. He had prayed he would make it over the fence before they got him. Those bastards. They don't waste any time. Screw them. Screw them. They killed Richard. They killed the Campbells. He waited for the bullets to lace his clothing. It was one of those moments with no time to think. He vaulted the fence, trampled somebody's front lawn, and passed two young kids swimming in a long cement pool. Tyus skidded back at the restaurant, and the booming sound of the police radio channels crackled around the neighborhood. Keep running, you damn fool. Keep running. Don't let them catch you or you're a dead man. One clean shot will knock you to the grass, Roy. Unknown assailants would scoop up the CDs as you lay dying in the hot sun. Maybe they'd pop another round into your back. All the work on the computer would be digested by some computer analyst back in Washington. They killed Richard. Halt! Right there! That was good. At least they hadn't fired. Five huge guys appeared on both sides of a small stucco house as if they were part of a John Wayne brigade or maybe the remains of an unemployed basketball team. But they did cuff him right away. One of them yanked the discs out of his pockets as the others dragged him to a waiting car. The evidence was gone. It was a one-way dialogue lasting to the freeway and past Oceanside. He wanted to know who they were and what exactly he had done wrong. Finally, a bulky, stone-faced man who constantly chewed the inside of his mouth turned on the radio and cranked up the speaker to some oldie station. Garrison shook his head and stared out the window. They had left the freeway south of Los Angeles and headed toward the beach. For some reason, they had let him live. That was more than what they gave Richard and the Campbells. They approached a marina bright with hundreds of boats along a cottage-lined cove. Garrison turned away from the sparkling water as the sedan slowed and pulled into a restaurant that looked like a Mississippi steamboat. Do I get lunch before I die? The stone-faced guy was probably close to chewing right through his cheek. Why not? Garrison was stunned when they removed the handcuffs. They walked him inside the steamboat as if they were going to a business luncheon. For 15 minutes, he stood on the lobby's green and blue wispy flower rug. From the hostess's wooden greeting stand, he panned the busy main room and studied the faces at every table. At lunch, their voices formed one huge buzz amidst the clinking glasses and plates. Waiters and busboys swarmed around their stations. 
Another dining section was packed with patrons next to a series of clean pane windows overlooking the blue marina. The hostess picked up the gold and black embossed menus at her stand. Nice of you to uh, join us for lunch, Roy. You recognize the crack of Keaton's voice. That's why you're alive, Roy. The damned FBI aren't the ones after you. Who's after me, Bruce? Keaton was dressed exactly as he had pictured, in a long maroon blazer, plain matching tie and gray pants. His sandy hair looked as if it was just cropped at the barbershop. You're one lucky son of a bitch, Roy. That's more than I can say for my brother. The tears seeped into his eyes. I'm sorry about your brother. Listen, I think we'd better sit down here. Who's behind this, Bruce? Let's sit down first. Keaton marched them all into the dining room. The other guys, dwarfing Keaton, walked like secret service agents now, checked out everything as they emerged from the darkened dining room. Keaton commandeered a table where the two glass spans came together, providing a sweeping view of the marina all the way out to the ocean. Almost instantly, a short, energy-packed little waitress appeared, ready to take the luncheon order. Garrison was rattled as the agents continuously panned the restaurant. He feared something was going to happen. Memories of Richard's car blowing up still haunted him as he ordered a BLT with soup and a cup of coffee. He hadn't eaten the sub since last night. Is Loretta all right? Keaton set down the menu and nodded. Very good. That's how I found you. And yes, she's fine and very concerned about your getting hurt. The waitress picked up the menus and scurried away. Keaton propped his elbows up on the blue tablecloth as the agents continued to patrol. Roy, you're in the middle of a highly classified security problem here called Green Haze. Good. What do you mean, good? Garrison smiled. I mean, I've been trying to figure this thing out. I've just spent 12 hours trying to sort through a company called Prescott Pharmaceuticals. I know. I just scanned the disk of my laptop in the car. I'm aware, Prescott. I know they make Pizac compound, the VED antidote. There's more. They manufacture the virus? Yes. I knew it. I knew it. Who else is involved? Are they doing this for profit or what? This is highly classified and you're in great danger, my friend. Who classified this? Defense Security. Well, how does the VED relate to defense security? Keaton gawked at him. His gray eyes were tensed. Well, I don't know what's going on here either, Roy. My people want answers too. Well, they're spreading that VED and bringing in their own drug to combat it. People are dying. So what can you or I do about it? I have to convince my supervisor to bring this forward. Garrison tightened his fists and pointed at his friend. Look, Bruce... I know I owe you for getting me out, but my brother is dead. Keaton's face wrinkled. You don't understand. My capacity is limited. I have to do what I am told. You're the FBI. The waitress appeared with two silver trays that she set down on a small table by the petitions linking the two rooms. Keaton spoke in a hushed voice as he leaned toward Garrison. You know, being the FBI doesn't mean jack shit. I can't go sticking my nose into something like this without sanction. I have my own realm, my own problems and agenda. My people must approve it. BLT, 
said the waitress as she set down Garrison's platter. The table was silent while she went about her work, finally asking if they needed anything else. Keaton shook his head as she told them to enjoy the meal. He leaned toward Garrison again. Roy, you ought to thank your lucky stars that you made it out. I'm sorry about your brother, but your investigation, all the stuff on the discs, it all ends today, right now. No balls. Keaton's face crunched angrily as he bit into his hamburger and the other agents followed suit. Okay, and what the hell are you and I going to do? Someone has already gotten to your boss. You know that and I know that. And if you go running around out there accusing people, you'll be a dead man. You're a dead man no matter what you do. I can't accept this. Keaton spoke through a mouthful of hamburger and toasted roll. Well, you're going to have to live with it. Your life as a reporter for the dispatch is over. Bullshit. He could do something if he wanted to. It wasn't engraved in concrete. He had to go running back to his supervisor about this. He's afraid, just like I'm afraid. Something has to motivate him. Keaton, what about your country? Don't you give a damn about your country? I know enough not to get involved in things I shouldn't be involved in. I do what I'm told and I stay alive. You should remember that. There was a long silence. Garrison finally nibbled at the BLT, picking up the pace, stuffing the triangular toasted chunks into his mouth and left the toothpicks on the plate. He turned to the marina. Several boats moved slowly through the harbor. People walking outside were unaware of the powerful forces thriving in the shadows around their life. We'll resettle you somewhere. Garrison picked at the fries. Then he smiled and looked up at Keaton. Get me to a computer. Keaton made a face as if the meal were not digesting very well. He leaned forward again. For what? Green haze. Green haze. Roy, this isn't some company website page. I told you the operation is classified. I don't even know what the hell it is. Garrison sat back in the chair and cupped his hands behind his head. I want a computer. And what do you hope to gain by this? My brother is dead, and so is that couple up north. Keaton closed his eyes, pinching the bridge of his nose. You stupid bastard. Even if you find something out, Roy, these guys... He scratched his nose. No. One of his guys tapped him on the shoulder. He nodded and quickly crossed the main room to the lobby. Garrison stared out at the mariner again. He finished the soup and fries and waited for Keaton. Green haze. Search for it, Keaton. Find out what it is. Garrison saw Keaton's maroon blazer a few minutes later. Keaton nodded at one of his guys and they all stood at the table. Roy, we're going to hide you. Change your identity. Nope, I want the computer. That is a stupid move. Keaton rubbed his eyes. Here's what I'm going to do. He opened his eyes and looked at Garrison. Then he pointed. I've done my job and now I'm out of this. Gone. If you lay your ass out there by doing something stupid later, you're on your own. Garrison stood and grabbed Keaton's wrist. No, Bruce. Hundreds of people are dead. What is it, just because they aren't Americans it doesn't matter? Is that it? You tell me Prescott makes the virus and the antidote? You tell me it has to do with defense strategy? I think they're laundering the money they make off the drug. Oh, we don't know that. 
but you damned well suspect it just like I do. Screw it. I've got nothing to lose in my life. I've blown opportunities. I dragged my brother to his death because of these bastards. No, I won't rest. You don't want to get involved, then don't. But I always thought of you, Keaton, as somebody with balls. But you're just a guy who does what he's told and goes after the sure thing. Keaton grabbed his shirt and pulled him up. I risked my ass to find you so you wouldn't get killed. They can kill me if I turn my back on this. Whether you know it or not, Bruce, you're already screwed. Do you think defense security is just going to pat you on the back for hiding me? I say, get the computer. Go after them now. Take our chances. You can call your people and help me find answers. Green Haze, Chapter 24 Garrison sat in front of Keaton's laptop, only a few miles from the restaurant. An open slider overlooked the sunlit Pacific breakers beyond the beach. Two hours ago, he had begun a search for websites relating to Prescott, but soon found himself boxed in again. On the beach, Keaton, white foam cradled between his shoulder and ear, sat with his men in lounge chairs. Garrison crossed his arms and leaned back in his wooden chair as Keaton walked inside the house. Roy, I just talked to my people. They don't know that you're... He looked at the computer screen. The hell are you doing? Looking for green haze. Keaton squinted and put his hand on Garrison's shoulder. Do you really think they're going to put a classified operation on a website? I'll try anything and I'll keep trying anything. He took his hands off the keyboard and looked up at his friend. What I don't understand is why somebody in your office wouldn't call somebody in defense security and just find out what this operation is. Doesn't work that way, said Keaton, turning. It's classified. My people are looking into this to get some input. Keaton headed for the patio and Garrison looked back at the screen. Something had come up on the search engine. Ah, bingo, Monsieur Keaton. He grabbed the chair and and clicked on the address, www.grah.com. A small paragraph about photos taken in St. Augustine, Florida, eight days ago, appeared before him. Keaton leaned in the doorway. Hey, Bruce, this is called Green Haze. Come on. Look. Green Haze established to store photographs taken in St. Augustine, Florida, that prompted the pillaging of a beachfront hotel. Law enforcement people were killed, and the photographer and his wife were forced on the run. A post-it message section was the only item on the site. He returned to the first page and reread the paragraph pertaining to pictures on the website. Either someone had removed the pictures from the site or nothing had been downloaded. Damn thing is empty. Where are the pictures? asked Garrison. Keaton was already on the patio and had the phone propped to his ear. Garrison clicked away to empty pages, trying to find the photos, but only found the main page text in the post-it section. Damn, he banged the desk. This must have been a fluke. Somebody messed up. He grit his teeth and leaned back. He quickly flipped back to the site. Where were those damn pictures? Why was this site called Green Haze, and why would they leave a paragraph describing the photos, yet remove the photos? Maybe the pictures were never downloaded. Maybe they got to this guy before he could do it. Garrison walked outside and put his hands on his hips. Keaton spoke loudly into the phone and nodded his head in broad motions. Are you kidding me? 
It's related? No, well, I don't know. He put his hand over the receiver. Anything more on that side, Roy? Nope. Keaton spoke into the phone again. No, that's it. Okay. Really? Where are they now? What? That sounds like a setup. How long ago was the friend killed? Yeah. And you're telling me these two people have eluded the authorities? Well, I think so, too. Reeks of a setup. I'll tell them. Keaton again looked back to Garrison. Is there an email or... No, just a post-message type of area. Yes, Don, there's an address. Okay. Okay, I will. No, let me stay on this. You can't just bring in other people. Green Haze is out of my league. You know it and I know it. Right. Keaton held out the phone. I don't want every Tom, Dick, and Harry on this. It has to be handled gingerly if they really want to find out what Green Haze is. He lifted the phone back to his ear. Right. Now? Okay, I'll get on it right now. What did he say? Keaton set the phone back on the patio table. This hotel thing in Florida with the couple from Iowa wasn't just a minor incident. Come on inside, Roy. Garrison followed him back into the house. The website paragraph was still on the computer screen. This Peters thing may be related to what happened to you, Roy. Of course it's related. The guy photographed something he wasn't supposed to photograph. Garrison stroked his chin. And Prescott has a plant outside Jacksonville. Keaton smiled. I knew I brought you along for something. This guy must have taken pictures, but my guess is they never were downloaded. He put the text in, but that's as far as he got. Or they were taken from the site. I don't know. Not a damn computer expert. This hotel thing in St. Augustine. I saw it on the news. People rifling the room, the car, three local cops were killed. Somehow Peters and his wife got out of the hotel. They jumped into a truck at the rear loading dock and drove it less than a mile to the river. Cops thought they might have drowned in the river. We had people investigating this, but I'll tell you there wasn't one guy who thought that Peters killed those cops. Somebody knew exactly what they were doing. Agreed, but where is Peters and his wife? Oh, it gets better. Local authorities in Paducah, Kentucky found that Peters' college friend dead at his house. The Peters were seen fleeing the house in the friend's truck. Well, where are they? Gone. Keaton paused and thought for a second. That Prescott thing is important. I mean, the fact that the plant is near St. Augustine. Whatever is going on there has been hidden very well. Do your people believe that someone was deliberately infecting the third world populations? We can't peruse that answer like we want to. We've been told to back off. A lot of stuff is still going on behind the scenes here. See, if they're doing what you and I suspect, they've broken the law, of course. And what about all the countries where the people were killed? How will they react? My job right now is this angle. Well, nailed it, Bruce. I can't guarantee that. Ah, bullshit. No, it isn't, Roy. You know as well as I do that some things are handled and never make it out. My brother is dead. How can they let this sit? I'm not saying they will, buddy. Keaton walked inside and leaned toward the computer screen. My people want us to leave a message for Sam Peters, hoping he'll browse the site. The guy got trapped, just like me, and now they're going to let this whole thing drop? No way. I'll nail these bastards. Garrison sat at the keyboard. He clicked on the post-it line on the website. Keaton was silent as they waited, and Garrison began typing the message again.
I have browsed Green Haze and found it to be of critical importance. Please explain what you mean by downloading the photographs. I have uncovered additional information about Green Haze and it's critical that I see if these photographs relate to the knowledge I have of Green Haze. They're after me too, period. My guess is that you are Sam or Nina Peters on the run. I was deliberately vague if we retain anonymity. If someone else is the originator of this site or monitor. Perfect. If the Peters browse the site, the ball will be in their court. Oh, they'll post something if they have the pictures and we might be able to crack this thing. Keaton shrugged his shoulders. Hold on. He opened the patio sliders and grabbed a newspaper on the glass table. Want me to get your pipe and slippers there, Bruce? Keaton grinned, but his face was quickly serious as he held the paper with both hands. On the front page was a colored picture of a man, maybe in his 50s, with combed-down gray hair, silver-rimmed glasses, and intense eyes. Deputy Director shot down. What does this mean? Keaton looked relieved at the question. This is what I've been hinting at, Roy. My people have told me that something is going on here with this Pangean thing in Green Haze. We don't know exactly what, but we do know that you were in deep enough for them to kill you. Garrison furrowed his brow. They don't care who they kill, do they? Of course not. Intelligence gathering has no conscience. Garrison stared at the newspaper. A civil war was ripping apart this African country. Grafton was an important man with defense security and his plane was just down by the current government supported by the United States. They were talking about this incident at the United Nations. He looked up slowly. This is out of your league, Bruce. I'm beginning to think that. The plane shadow with the devil. All because of a series of photographs in the wrong place and time, Sam and Nina's old friend Griff is dead. And Garrison's brother loses his life because Roy Garrison is trying to uncover the truth about Green Haze. Grafton by this time is starting to realize that he and the agency may have a problem. I'm Robert P. Fitton, buckling up and flying east toward Africa. Follow me. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.